your trusted source for news and analysis about Chicago White Sox prospects and player development, covering the Major League Baseball draft and international market, plus the action in Kannapolis, Winston-Salem, Birmingham, and Charlotte. This is the Future Sox Podcast with your hosts, Mike Rankin and James Fox. Welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. My name is Mike Rankin. I'm your host, James Fox. Alongside us, we have another guest this week. That's because the draft is coming up. Burke Granger, at Burke Granger on Twitter. He's a Midwest baseball scout, writer, D1Baseball.com. Burke, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me, guys. It's always fun to to hop on here and talk White Sox baseball, talk the draft, talk college baseball. Yeah, you know, we want to get as many experts who have seen these players on the podcast as as possible. And Burke, we love talking to you every year because we know that you're fixated on certain groups right around the country in in terms of conferences and your responsibilities for D1Baseball.com. What is it that you've been working on throughout the year? And is there an experience that stands out to you when you're out on assignment? Yeah, so so I, I travel. My, my primary responsibility is to cover Midwest college baseball. So so the, the big leagues there would be the Big Ten, the MAC, the Horizon, the Missouri Valley Conference. So it, it's, it's a lot of area to cover because the Midwest goes all the way to the, the, the Dakotas. Um, and I don't make it out there much, candidly. But uh, so we split the area, myself and, and my partner, Patrick Eber, who's located in the Milwaukee area. So we we try to cover and get to as many games as possible. So for me, the regular season is, is pretty hectic. It starts, you know, mid-February, ends late May. And, I, and I'm on the road pretty much every weekend trying to balance, uh, you know, family uh, and, and things like that. But it's I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. I, I feel extremely blessed to be there and, and do what I do. Um, and I had a kind of a moment of, of appreciation as we're doing, doing the national anthem before a regional. So the regional, that time of year is, is very busy for us where you go from right from conference tournaments to the regional draw is that night that, that conferences are wrapping up their tournaments. And then, and then we're trying to decide where we're going to be the next weekend to cover the regional. And um, that can get pretty hectic because you're at the ballpark from, from sunup till sundown, pretty much you're, you're trying to write articles in between games. Then you go back to the hotel and you're, you're writing articles until three in the morning and you're doing all this while you know, a baseball regional is similar to, to March Madness for those that don't follow college baseball. There's there's games going on all around the country. There's 16 different regional sites. Um, so aside from being a writer, I'm also just a fan. So I'm trying to write these articles in the middle of the night as I'm as I'm watching the coverage from from the other D1 baseball correspondents around the country. And it's just to me that I'm just so thankful that I had the level of access that I do, because first and foremost, I'm just a college baseball fan who's who gets to do this. And, and it's, it's just really kind of, I'm, I'm very fortunate to do what I do. And, and for me, it always, it always culminates with the regional because that's, that's like our, it's, it's our event uh, for college baseball fans to, to showcase what the sport is all about. And this, this college baseball postseason, if you guys are following it up, up through Omaha, has just been fantastic. And I think, you know, the, the ratings are up. So we're seeing increased popularity in the sport. And I'm just, I'm thrilled to be a part of it. Burke, that is a great perspective there. I love getting uh, the picture painted for us as baseball fans, hearing it from scouts and the lifestyle you live. And you talk about 
you know, the Midwest and the college game today, we just got done watching Rhett Lauder versus Paul Skeens. And when we get into this draft class, I'm curious, you know, your opinion on how it stacks up and, you know, just the interest level of the game currently in college baseball and where we see the athletes in their advanced state. Because like I said, that pitching matchup is probably the best pitching college pitching matchup that I've ever seen. I mean, for me, it was the best college baseball game I've ever seen, candidly. And and I, I love that I was able to cover it with a beer in my hand in my basement. Uh, not cover it, watch it. I was able to just enjoy it as a fan. And, you know, I was so amped up after the game that I probably could have stayed up till three in the morning to write just because I was so, you know, I, I had no stake in who won or lost. It was, you're, we're seeing two potential top 10 picks, probable top 10 picks go at it. And how often do you do you see something that you're really looking forward to and it lives up to the hype? And this did, um, and, and it exceeded it. I mean, it was to, Tommy Tanks walked off, walked it off for LSU, hitting walk off home run against against Wake, Wake Forest's you know lights out closer, and and he he does it, and it's his 99th and 100th RBI. We we got a guy in that game, Brock Wilkin, who had 31 home runs. You know, Skeens is the best pitcher since since Steven Strasburg. And then you got you know, Rhett Lauder on the other side for, for Wake Forest is 15 and 0, like back to back ACC pitcher of the year. So great. It's it's at the, the biggest scale for college baseball and, and, and the biggest uh, showcase event. And the guys came to play. And, and it really, I think, I hope it advanced the interest of college baseball because it, it really lived. It was, it's like Ali Frazier. Um, and, and, and it, we got everything we deserved and more last night. So it was, it was great to watch. Well, and I feel like you can almost argue that there's like going to be more star power now too, right? With Florida, like getting into the mix here, just because, I mean, like Wyatt Lankford, I think is a guy that could be one, one most years, but you have Skeens and, and uh, Cruz in this class. So I feel like he gets undersold a little bit and then Florida, you know, Florida could win the whole thing. So yeah, it's been pretty, inter- it's been pretty interesting. I don't know if, like, you know, the ratings are up. I don't know if the common fan, like, cares about the number of draft prospects that have been, like, in Omaha. You know what I mean? Like, I feel mm-hmm. like a couple of years ago when, what, Vandy had, like, a star-studded rotation in Kumar Rocker and Lighter that everybody kind of knew about. Like, they were super popular. But this year, I mean, Omaha was, like, loaded with guys that are going to go super high in this draft. I wonder how much that's helped. For guys like me, I, I I know it helps, you know. For and guys like you who run prod, prospect web uh, podcasts and websites, like I know you guys follow follow the prospects and and the draft, and and that helps to get the word out. But one one thing I've noticed in my coverage over the years, and it might just be anecdotal, like throughout the season, the the people on Twitter who are interested in the draft, like they are much less results driven. Like I'll I'll go there and I'll report on a player and. They're very interested seemingly in the velocity, the spin rate, kind of the, the traditional scouting stuff. And then you get to the postseason and you get more of those. This like I'll, I'll be followed just by fans of teams who who know less in, about the draft. And they they really want to know more coverage like, hey, what's the coach saying about why they why he pulled a guy in this situation and things like that. So to your point, James, like I, I do see like. I think the ratings are up because of just the action on the field has been compelling. Uh, a lot of blue blood teams in Omaha with with big fan bases. We've talked about Florida. We've talked about LSU, Wake Forest. You know, look going going to Omaha, Omaha for the first time since 1955. But they were a team 
for the ages. So I think just getting those, those big teams in Omaha has helped out with the ratings. And then the product on the field has been second done this year. So there's obviously like some question, I think, still about number one in this draft. We've talked about it a lot on the podcast just because it's Pittsburgh. And look, there. I mean, I think to the common fan, it seems pretty simple, right? Like you have the two LSU guys, but mm-hmm. it's not that easy. Dylan Cruz uh, pulled himself out of the 2020 draft. It looks like the right decision, obviously, as he's widely assumed to be you know, the top position player he'll get, you know, he'll, he, I, I would imagine he's like a top three lock, whatever. Right. But what did you think of him coming out of high school? And then like compared to, I guess, like what he's turned into now. Yeah. And I love this question. So the first time I saw Dylan Cruz was in 2018, he was playing. Um, so he was heading into his junior year of high school at the time. So he was playing up on the, the USA baseball 18 U team. And it was an absolutely stacked team that year. Um, that includes current, I, I repeat, current major leaguers, Bobby Witt Jr., Corbin Carroll, Anthony Volpe, Riley Green, C.J. Abrams. Like that team was stacked. And then you have Dylan Cruz, who was a year younger on that team. Uh, so my impression at that time was like, this is a very tooled up kid. The talent was obvious. Uh, he was raw, but but he was like 16 years old. So he did struggle with that team. There was there was. Uh, a lot of swing and miss for him, but even even with those major leaguers on that on that team and in that lineup, Cruz Cruz's bat speed was it stood out. It was some of the bat speed, but best bat speed on the team, uh, even if he was maybe a little undisciplined. So he found himself behind in counts uh, often, and he chased, um, and he wasn't on the barrel very often. Um, but this was a full year before he was draft eligible, so those weren't warning signs. And then. I did see him a couple times during his draft cycle and and it was intriguing tools, but the results weren't always there. So I recall one game in Jupiter that that um, that would have been October before before he was draft eligible that that summer. So I taped him like just just from the side view, got some got some video on Twitter of him just demonstrating the bat speed. Cause like I said, it, it, it was impressive. Even if you don't have tools to measure it, like just the eye test, you can be like, wow, this guy can really swing the bat. And I got several comments from people on Twitter claiming like, Hey, bat speed doesn't matter. Results are what matters. And you know, to me, that's just asinine thinking, obviously when you're talking about scouting. Um, but there were whispers of swing and miss concerns that were hurting his draft stock that spring. Uh, it was a short, short season. if you recall, because of COVID, um, so I'm not sure if that's why he pulled out, but he he still could have been a first round or maybe a comp guy. Uh, but the comp round that year, the bonuses were like $2 million and he's going to get $6 million more than that this year and a chance to win a college world series. So I'd say he made the right decision. Um, the, the big things for him that have changed over the last three years in my, in my opinion are his swing decisions and the quality of contact. Um, and those are two trendy metrics but for good reason. Uh, Joe Doyle, I think, tweeted out something recently the other day um, that over the last five years in college baseball, there's only two guys with a chase rate uh, under 14.5% and an exit velocity of 95.5% or higher. And those two guys are Dylan Cruz and Adley Rutschman. So that's good company to be in. uh, Good indicator that those skills are going to translate into pro ball. Uh, And the other tools are there too. He, He runs well. Uh, I was watching again from my basement last night with a beer in one hand and a stopwatch in the other. I got 
I got four two two down the line on an infield single uh, in the first inning for Cruz, and that's that's fifty five to sixty speed. Uh, and defensively, I think he's a good center fielder. He could stick there at the next level, uh, but he also has enough arm to, to handle right field if he fills out more and turns into, you know, a power hitting corner guy. So big, big fan of Cruz. Everyone's situation is different in this situation. It's just obvious that it worked out for him. You know, he, like I said, he would have been would have been a, a high pick in the top 40 or 50 uh, three years ago. But he's going to make six million dollars more this year. And and. And, you know, who knows? Who knows what the development would have been in pro ball compared to LSU? Um, but he's at a place now where where it's difficult to second guess his decision for sure. Yeah. So then it's, you know, it's Pittsburgh at one. I alluded to it like they, they went under slot a couple of years ago with Henry Davis. And obviously, look, I mean, that class wasn't this class where there's like multiple guys that could be one one any other year. You know, you just basically painted the picture of how good Cruz is we'll get into skeins in a minute. And then there's other guys that are capable too. How tough of a decision should this be for the pirates? Would you just, you know, kind of take Cruz, knowing that it's so, you know, the money always plays in. I think it's a 9.7 mm-hmm. is, is number one this year. So you'd have to probably pay him close to that 9.7. Yeah. Or do you think they cut a deal? I don't know. How tough should this be for them? Well, it's, it's not my money. So it, it would be easy for me, but, and I wouldn't get too cute with it. I think it's, I think there's a definitive top five in this, this class. And within that top five, I think there's an upper tier of the two LSU guys in Baton Rouge. So for me, it'd be a two-way race between Cruz and Skeens. Um, and that's, that's, a, that's not taking anything away from anyone else, obviously. And I agree with you with what you said earlier on Lankford, like with those type, those types of bat to ball skills, I think he could have be a one, one candidate. In, in any other year, and maybe this year, who knows? Like, I think at this point in the cycle, two years ago, we wouldn't have been saying Henry Davis would be the 1-1 pick, and he was by the same Pirates. And like you said, James, he he signed for almost $2 million under slot. But they went they went over slot for Tamar Johnson, right, last year. So it, if it were me, like I said, I wouldn't get too cute with it. I'd, it would be I, – I would be uh, – it would be a two-way race between Cruz and Skeens, and, and it would be a close one for me. There's no I in team, but there is one in Indeed, and that's the hiring platform that you need to build yours. When you're hiring, you need Indeed. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed's a powerful hiring platform that can help you do it all. One of the things I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because Indeed does the hard work for you. They show you the candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your description immediately after you post so you can hire faster. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash BlueWireSports. Offer good for a limited time. Claim your $75 credit now at Indeed.com slash BlueWireSports. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWireSports. And support the show by saying that you heard it on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWireSports. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Burke, seldom do we see a pitcher like Paul Skeens. And you know, when we're looking at the top five, you, you hear consensus top five. But Paul Skeens is, you know, I think of John Gray when he was drafted after you know Chris Bryan, the, the Mark Appel draft as well there. And mm-hmm. I'm thinking of this season's you know first round pick. And 
what is going on within the decision-making process, like in the war room? What goes on within the war room when it comes to stud pitcher like Skeens versus position player that you know you can develop and is going to be on the field every day? So, yeah, I, I think it – I agree with you. I think I think Skeens is – I'd go further than Gray. I think he's the best the best pitching prospect in college since, like, Steven Strasburg. And, I, you know, I don't know how old you guys are, but uh, he, he was a huge deal on his draft year, and that was back when college baseball was – a fraction as popular as it is now. So now, now candidly, if I'm rating mustaches, I might take Skeens over Cruz, although they're both above average. If I'm being conservative, like I could go 70 on Skeens and maybe a 60 on Cruz. Um, but it's, it's tough to knock it. It's tough to find a thing to knock on, on Paul Skeens. He's, he's big, he's physical. He, like we're talking about a guy who's imposing at, at 6'6", 250, and he controls his body and stays balanced more than most pitchers that size. He, I mean, he struck out 200 guys this year with less than 20 walks. That's absurd in a college baseball season. It's it's easy, triple-digit velocity. Um, it's it's as easy as I've seen as, as someone who throws that hard. It's a it's a, it's a double-plus or plus slider. Um, I saw ML, MLB Pipeline has his change-up listed as a grade 50, and, and I think Jim Callis does this better than anyone in the business. Um, but... <laughs> But my my boss and, and Jim's former colleague at ba- Baseball America, Aaron Fitt, recently tweeted out that lefties ha- have a 350 OPS against Skeens. Like 350 OPS. That's that's absurdly low. And you can't do that in the SEC with a fastball and slider alone. The hitters will tell you how nasty a pitch is. And when you're trying to prepare for a 101 on the hands, you're going to be early on that on that change up with late tumble. So the, the other thing that I like about Skeens that he has – going for him from a player development standpoint is the huge strides he's made in less than a year from the time of this summer when he was like 92, 95 with a good changeup and a, a bad slider. Now he's carrying high nineties velocity deep into deep. You know, he was over a hundred pitches and, and touching a hundred last night on the, on the TV gun, but no offense to air force, but he gets one fall and one spring at LSU and he turns into the best, best pitcher in the country. Like he was a potential first rounder, but like maybe the the fourth, fifth best pitcher in the class heading into this draft cycle. And now he's, he's the top guy by a mile. So if I'm a team, I'm salivating about what's left in the tank when I can get a guy like Paul Skeens in a pro ball, like how much meat is left on that bone. I think there's probably still some like he's already pro ready. Right. And, and like, if it were me, I, I would, I would sideline him for the rest of the year. You know, I'd take him one or two this year. I'd sideline him for the rest of the year, and I'd, I'd invite him to to camp next year with a chance to break camp as, as a starter in in the rotation. And that that's significantly tougher to do than what Garrett Crochet did a couple of years ago with the White Sox by throwing some innings out of the bullpen. But I think Skeens is up for it. Mike Mike Leak did it uh, between Arizona State and the Reds back in like 2010. And they did a deep run in Omaha that year, much like LSU. And then he broke camp the following year in the Reds rotation. Skeens is that kind of that kind of advancement for me uh, with a chance to be uh, more impactful than a guy like than a guy like um, Mike Leake. So so, yeah, a- as for what the conversation is in the draft room, I you know, I really that would be 100 percent speculation on, on my part. But I assume you know, if a guy like Skeens with with as much as he's accomplished on the field this year, it is Strasburg like. So if he doesn't go one one, then may, then maybe there is that worry that 
clubs have when they're using real money about the attrition rate of pitchers. Like pitchers get hurt more than, than position players. There's, it, it just happens. You're going to get chances are you're going to get more uh, opportunity and impact from a guy like Dylan Cruz because there's less chance of, of, of injury risk, but you know, none of that's guaranteed I, to me. They're one in one a in this class. Um, and I'm, I'm glad I don't have to make the pick. Well, so I think I heard like Carlos Colazzo said that, you know, I think Yuri Perez is the only pitching prospect in baseball that he would take over Paul Skeens right now. So wow. that, that's impressive. And, and that's, I, and that's I, what I, I mean. Yeah. Like, I just don't know. Like, I don't have the top 100 list in front of me. Right. But he's, he's going up super high on it. Jim Callis said similar to you, he thinks he gets shut down for the year and then goes right to double a next year. And then, you know, if he's good yeah. there, then you're basically in the big leagues. You know, this is something we've asked guests, like just, it's not really necessarily a question, right? I just kind of think like if, if the pirates underslot somebody at one, like and you're Mike Rizzo, I just, I just don't know how you make that decision. Cause I agree with you. Like, I think, you know, I think Skeens probably goes two to Washington, but I don't know, but I don't know that he does if Cruz is also available. So I just, I don't know. Like overall, it just seems like the industry is overthinking this a little bit. I understand preferring position players over pitchers. Totally Mm -hmm. get it. Right. But you don't get guys like this unless you take them here or spend, you know, $300 million on them. So I think when you have the opportunity to do it, I think we're probably overthinking it a little bit. You should just take them. Right. Like, let's say, let's say it costs, you know, we're talking about it almost a $10 million bonus anyway. That's the price of, of, of relief pitcher. Uh, an eighth inning setup guy. So you're getting the opportunity to get an ace. Like you said, that, that you're a potential ace there's for sure risk, but like you said, you're, you're not going to get that opportunity until he hits free agency later with, with guys like this typically. Um, And you know, anything can happen, but to me, he he would be up there. And if you, if you take, if you don't take a guy like Skeens or Cruz, like, and you want to take, you want to go under slot. Cause I think those two guys will require mostly, you know, I don't know if it'll be the full slot, but there's other guys that you could, they're not guys that you could take $2 million under slot. Like they did with Henry Davis, obviously. Um, but if you take a guy under slot, like, I don't know who you're trying to float to in, in the second round, if that were the case, I don't know. I know you guys follow the other mock drafts, but have you seen like, what, what would the, the strategy be there? Who would be the guy you try to float to the second round? with extra bonus. Money. Right. Right. So I asked this to a guest, Mike, like, cause like Pittsburgh picks it at 42, right? I would, oh, under- that's right. Like, they don't so, have right. Like so that. I would, I would understand it more if they had a comp pick like in the thirties. Cause I feel like, like, look, say you go max Clark and it's seven and a half million, right? You're, you could probably push a $4 million player. So mm-hmm. you're talking like maybe Thomas white or, you know, something like that, I guess would be my, like, do you want max Clark and, Thomas White, or would you rather just take one of these top two guys? And look, they have enough in their bonus pool where they could still add good players after. I, like in this scenario, like I kind of lean towards Cruz or Skeens personally, but you know, we'll we'll see uh, what they do. It's going to be super interesting. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. This is so good, Burke, and we have a handful of questions left for you. I want to stick to pitching because, you know, we talked Rhett Louder a little bit earlier. Uh, I want your thoughts there, as well as Chase Dolander. I think you had an opportunity to see both those pitchers. Could you just give us a couple scouting reports there? 
Yeah. So, so I saw Rhett Louder on opening weekend and man, he, he's fun to watch. I, it was just, I was so fortunate to see Wake Forest on opening weekend, but then it was like, man, it was really kind of downhill from there because they are so good. And I know their season just, just ended last night as we, as we taped this on a, on a Friday, but um, yeah, like Louder goes, like I said, he goes 15 and 0 reigning ACC pitcher of the year and then repeats it. Um, he, he ended his season with like a 170 RA school record and single season strikeouts. It's, it's the best pitchability of any guy that I've seen uh, live or on TV this spring. He was up to, to up to 95 in my look, uh, but just tremendous feel for his pitches. Uh, maybe the best college command I've seen since George Kirby out, out of, um, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm drawing a blank, Elon a, a few years ago. Um, and, and maybe the best changeup I've seen this year. What One thing I really like about him is he'll throw his changeup to righties and lefties alike, which is, that's rarer in college baseball than it should be. Um, but it really says a lot about the confidence in the pitch of whoever's calling it. And and I don't know if it's Corey Muscara at, at Wake Forest who calls Rhett Louder's pitches, but he's one of the best pitching coaches in the country. Uh, now the slider ha- isn't as consistent as the changeup, but it was very good in my look against Illinois earlier this year. Like he threw it 24 times and got 10 swings and misses, which is kind of elite usage. Um, and it tunneled well with, with his fastball. There are a few times I've seen on, on TV, including last night where, where it lacked a little bite. So if he gets in trouble, it's, it's usually in, in my experience on those early count sliders that maybe he hangs, um, but he doesn't hang him very often. Like I said, 15 to no 1.70 RA. Um, for for me, the 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 slider is above average, but I wouldn't put I wouldn't fault anyone for putting like an average or or, or forty five grade on if they sell them on the right the wrong day. Um, I don't know if scouts view Louder as a frontline starter or more of a safer mid rotation guy. For me, um, the two guys in this class that I think have the best stuff to be like frontline starter are Skeens, obviously, and then it is Chase Dolan there. So I saw Dolander twice last year, and he entered. This draft cycle is my my top guy that I like. I liked him so much, like ahead of Cruz um, and, then, and then way ahead of Skeens because Skeens, Skeens didn't look like this in the summer. Um, Dollander was was basically playing catch in the upper 90s when I saw him against Vanderbilt. Um, so, again, a good good quality team. And he carried it deep into the game. Uh, it, it was nearly as effortless as Skeens' fastball velocity. Um most importantly, it's front end stuff with with front end command, or at least it was last year. So he's a little more wiry. Uh, I should say a lot more wiry than Skeens. Skeens is is built like a tank, and Dollander's like 6'2", 200, around that area. What's what's changed this year? In so Dollander, he was the SEC pitcher of the year last year. This year, regressed. I think his ERA was maybe two and a half higher than it was last year. Um, what changed, in my opinion, is is his command regressed just a tick, like. He struck out guys at the same rate. His walk rate doubled. And, and yes, I'm aware command and control aren't the same thing, but you know, you miss a spot early, you fall behind, you get in more favorable hitters counts and and you pay for it. That's baseball 101. The, the other thing, in my opinion, that teams um, and why he kind of didn't perform as well this year as he did last year is there's more of a book on him this year. He Last year, he was a newcomer in the SEC. He, he pitched at Georgia Southern as a freshman. So there's tape on tape and data on everyone, but SEC teams obviously got a, an up close, up close look at, at Dollander last year, and it seems like they made some adjustments this year. But, but with all that said, I, I'd take Dollander 
a tick higher than louder because I think there's more upside, but I wouldn't fault anyone else for flipping those two. Like, I, I think they'll go very close to one another and it'll depend on preferences or, or the day that whatever cross checker, cross checker decision maker saw that, saw those two. You know, one other guy that we've kind of mentioned here, just like in passing Max Clark, um, lots of personality from Indy. You, you've seen him in person. What, what does he like project as for you? We've kind of talked, he, you know, there's rumors that he's the, the pirates cut option at one, you know, who knows? Mm -hmm. I would imagine he goes top five regardless. I think he's pretty fun, but what, what did you think when you saw him? Yeah, I think fun's a good adjective for, for Max Clark. Um, I, I really like him. I saw Kylie McDaniel had a, had a mock draft a while ago, um, with Clark going one, one at a discount. And, you know, I have a special place in my heart for, for cold weather prep bats and, the industry tends to ding these guys because they don't play in Florida or California. Um, but he entered this draft cycle as the top prep player in the class. And he really didn't do anything to change that. Like I saw him at, at PG national. And again, at the, at the prep baseball report, super 60, which is a really cool amateur event in your guys' area. Uh, and he was one of the bigger names that I've seen there since like Jared Kellenick a few years ago. I think people draw comparisons to Kellenick because Kellenick was a Wisconsin kid. You know, it, it, it might be a little lazy comp. It's just comparing two cold weather bats who bat left-handed. Um, I, I like Clark's a Vanderbilt commit. I'd be surprised if he makes it to Canvas, but not totally shocked. Like if he somehow slides past the first five picks or maybe he has a high number. Vanderbilt does have a track record for getting guys to school like like Rocker and Lighter. And I'm, I'm drawing a blank on the prep pitcher from Indiana last year. Um, oh yeah, Andrew Dukanich. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so Clark, Clark's very toolsy, and the, the tools show up in game environments and in showcase environments. He he hits, he runs, he fields, and he's got a cannon for an arm. The the biggest question mark for him is is how much power he'll hit for. Um, I think I think he has the tools and instincts to stick in center field, just like just like Cruz, but also like Cruz, like he has he has a better arm than Cruz, so he could develop into that power hitting corner corner outfielder if needed. Um, I think projecting high school hit tools, um, is, is one of the most difficult things to do in evaluation, uh, because the pitcher quality he faced this spring in Indiana, it, it is different than what he'll face in the Midwest league at, in pro ball, obviously. Um, but he's got, st he's still with that said, he's got some of the best bat to ball skills that I've seen in a prep player. You know, he doesn't swing in much doesn't swing and miss much, you know, there, there it's maybe better bat to ball skills than Kellenick had as a high school player, but, but Kellenick had more power at this age. Um, so I, I almost see a little Gunnar Henderson in the profile. I know we're talking, we're comparing infielders and outfielders, but again, really like Clark. I, I like, he played, plays the game uh, with a certain amount of, of cockiness and everyone has a different threshold for, for how much they tolerate there. But for me, I'm like, Hey, the, the kid, kid backs it up and, and you know i've heard nothing but good things about the makeup so he, he's a guy i like quite a bit and i'm in, interested to see where he goes i just wouldn't have him kind of in that one two one two mark unless like you said james earlier if you were floating a guy to the early second round that would be a more appealing option to take take a discount with with a guy like clark at one one but but i don't see that i don't see that with the pirates so i i would i would imagine he would go you know three or later but who knows so you know Max Max Clark's hitting coach is uh, White Sox scouting director Mike Shirley. 
Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> I did not, not know wait, that. Not that not that it matters because that, that's not happening. But so you yeah. know, just to get into the White Sox discussion a little bit, they've been linked heavily to bats um, on the college and prep side. Just I guess in general, what uh, what makes sense for them? Best player available that'll take the least amount of money, essentially. Yeah. I mean. If, if I'm a White Sox fan, and, and I think you guys know that I, I am a closeted White Sox fan, um, and I've, I've been in the closet for most of this spring because there hasn't been much <laughs> much on the field to be happy about. But I look at the system, and I think you know they, they could definitely have some more impact bats there. Um, if you think about them, I think you probably have the most upside possibility with a prep bat, but there's also that risk. Um, and I, I know I don't know what you guys thought of the 2021 draft, but I liked it in the moment. You know, Monk, Colson Montgomery certainly looked like the guy. I know he's been dinged up this year. Uh, West Cath, I, I like that pick, but he's been struggling, you know, quite a bit. There's a ton, ton of swing and miss, and that's that's the challenge in projecting these high school bats. So, I have, I have no inside knowledge, but if there were guys like Aiden Miller who entered this cycle as really one of the top prep bats in the, in the class, like if he's there, he he would be tempting, but he's He's a power hitting corner corner infielder. Like, do you, do you how much do you invest in that in the high school level? I think I think that's risky for for me. I, it would give me heartburn. Um, for me, like a guy like Matt Shaw from Maryland would be in play. I th- I think he could be there, and and I feel good about him. He plays shortstop for Maryland in college, but it profiles as an offensive second baseman. He doesn't have the arm for the left side of the infield. I think he'll hit, and I think he'll hit for power. Um, and there's just quite, a, there's quite a lot to like about him from an offensive standpoint. Again, similar to Dylan Cruz, it's the swing decisions and the quality of contact. It's an all fields approach. It's it's, he runs pretty well. He, he stole, I think 18 bags this year and, and White Sox fans might have Nick Madrigal PTSD. And I, I wouldn't blame him if they, if they end up taking a college second baseman, but this is a different profile. The ball, the ball jumps off Matt Shaw's bat a lot more. Um, so if, if I'm the White Sox, I let the draft come to me. I, I I take the best player available at 15, and then you adjust from there. Uh, I don't cover the draft as kind of much as as much as I did when I worked for prior publications. But but when I look at the draft rankings that are published online from other groups, like and compare it to my mental rolodex of who I've seen this year, a lot of the guys ranked from like 10 to 20. To, like I don't see a huge difference in them, like I do in the ter- in the top five. So it, it kind of they kind of all blend together until I get into 2025. So for me, like I said, let it come to me. I take the best player available at 15 and then, and kind of adjust and, and have options from there and with the other picks. Yeah. That's, uh, you know, essentially what we've been hearing as well regarding that area of the draft and the White Sox sitting at 15 and thinking about the, I, I agree. I think the White Sox would, well, first of all, a second baseman in the system that develops into a regular would be phenomenal. And I will mm-hmm. take that. Um, I'm just thinking of the strategy in prior years by the White Sox in their front office regarding the draft class and the way they spend internationally and the, you know just overall trying to build their farm system. Now, Burke, I know you said you're a White Sox fan and Mike Shirley officially took over and his first draft class was 2020. Curious your opinion on the way that he's gone about filling his farm system with draft picks and the philosophy that you've seen um, Mike Shirley undergo in trying to rebuild a system that's at the bottom of the league. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know if I, I've liked all the picks as they've happened. You know, I, I think I might've been on the phone with, with you, James, when, when they picked Garrett Crochet, when we were doing a, 
doing one of the the pre-draft shows or live draft shows and th that was a bit of surprise you know I don't I don't think I love that pick when it happened but I really like the fact that they got Jared Kelly in the second like I was I got to live by it you know I know that it hasn't worked out and he hasn't been good but I gotta I gotta admit I liked it at the time because in, in my mind he was a top three or four prep arm in that class and they got they got him in the second so I, I was happy with it again I liked kind of what they did going going young guys in 21 as well but there's the west calf pick I don't I don't know how you guys feel about it it doesn't look great right now um so I, I definitely like what Mike Shirley's done I, I just think if I'm Mike Shirley I'm, I'm hopeful that he they stick they stay away from the college corner guys this year because just with the recent history of the White Sox that hasn't worked out the way we had all hoped with guys like Andrew Vaughn I know he, he's he's doing okay he's turning it on a little bit but Gavin Sheets I'm, I'm not super high on I wasn't high on the Jake Berger pick I know he's he's had more success than I thought he would but the OBP is still what under 300 like it's it's an impact bat but I don't know if it fits into the rest of that lineup um because guys aren't aren't taking walks is is kind of how I'm feeling with that so it's kind of a long-winded answer to say jury's still out um I I, I do like the the risk the risks that Mike Shirley is taking I think that's where you can get the upside but like I said, you, you got to let the draft come to you. I don't I don't know who that player is going to be at 15. Um, and I'm, I'm curious to see how that'll play out. Well, so lately they have they have been linked to some college corners, you know, and yeah, Yolandi yeah. Morales is a guy who, look, I don't think should be the 15th pick in this draft because I just don't I don't really believe in the profile and I definitely don't believe in it for the White Sox. You know, that's a guy that they tried to sign in 2020 and they decided to go the Crochet Kelly route instead. You know, so you have him. That would kind of surprise me just because I think there's going to be better players on the board. I know you've seen Brock Wilkin. I don't expect mm -hmm. him to go that high. But, like, what about, like, Braden Taylor? If Braden Taylor's there at 15, like, is the like, do you take the college corner possibly? Is that, like, the only one that, okay, fine, like, I would understand that there? Or is there just going to be so many middle infielders and prep guys that they just really shouldn't even have to dip into this pool of college corner guys? Yeah, and I, and I haven't seen Taylor, so I'm gonna I'm gonna politely punt on that one a little bit. Like I I do I do think he has maybe he might be the safer of all of, of those three corner guys when you talk about Morales and Wilkin. Like uh, Morales, coincidentally enough, was on that same stacked 18U team that I talked about with Dylan Cruz. Like, um, and the carrying tools for him are are pretty similar to what they are for Brock Wilkin. It's it's a strong arm and a lot of raw power from the right side. Uh, the difference is like, and, and they're like built the same, like both are six, four but they they're very different athletic profiles. Morales was a, a former shortstop who's kind of grown out of that position. Wilkin was a former catcher and you can see that difference in their gait when they run. Um, for me, what I, I, I would favor, Morales a little bit there because you have more options. Like if it doesn't work out at third and he has a better defender than Wilkin at third, he has the athleticism to handle a, cor a corner outfield. Whereas Wilkin it's, it's like Wilkin it's third base or first base. And I think it'll probably be first base. And, and then he's a right, right first baseman with plus power. Like he could be, could be Andrew Vaughn, could be Spencer Torkelson. He could, or it could be um, Paul, uh, Peter Alonso. Like, but the point being, I think he'll he'll be driven down draft boards a little lower. Be, right or wrong, I think he'll probably be 
dinged for the sins of others because the 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 profile of that the right right corner infielder out of college is not great um and the track history is not great so i i like brock wilkin i think he'll be a, a major leaguer but i think he'll he'll probably be punished and driven down the draft board a little bit i do think morales you know i i, I haven't been the highest guy on him uh dating back to when he was a high school player but he's gotten better. He he was he's turned into a better college player at the U than I thought he would. Um, again, it, it's it's good raw power. I think I think he's got a better chance to stick at third base. But but I don't like you like you guys. I don't see a great fit there for the White Sox. I've I've seen them linked to them as well. I but for me, it, I I would be staying away from that profile only because you you just got rid of a log jam there plus the addition of of the guys not maybe being as impactful as you hoped when you drafted him. So let's, let's mix it up a little bit. It would be my thinking. Well, yeah. And I, I just think like, I hated it 15, right? Like if you're yeah. picking 25 and you really like Yoandi Morales, okay, fine. Like, I mm-hmm. think that's fine there, but I think with the way this draft's going, all the guys we've talked about and guys that me and Mike have talked about with guests for, you know, what, what seems like six weeks now, you know, you have your consensus top five at the top, and then you're going to have a couple of college starters, and you're probably going to have Noble Meyer on the prep side, right? So then, like, I think you're guaranteed one of four or five guys that I would be happy with, and none of them are these college corner types, right? I kind of feel like Aiden Miller's a little bit undersold. Like, yeah, he's a third baseman, but at least it's on the prep side. So, like, if they're going to yeah. do that, like, I would prefer him over any of those guys. And then, like you said, Matt Shaw makes a lot of sense to me, you know, so I just, I just think that there will be somebody at 15 where it like is more obvious than, you know, having to like necessarily go into this draft, like with a plan. I kind of think somebody's going to fall to them, which makes it interesting because of Mike Shirley's track record so far, the White Sox are pretty much a wild card right now, in my opinion. Right. And, and I think, I think someone will fall as well. Like 15 is kind of an awkward spot. Like especially for the the White Sox recent struggles, you hope you hope they're picking a little higher than that. But um I could I could very easily see one of those guys in the top ten that we think are locks to go in the top ten slide down to fifteen. And then it's just like then you just if you're a White Sox fan, you're hoping that they don't that they're not locked in on a guy that was expected to be to be there at fifteen. You know, you, you hope that they're pliable, that they've done their due diligence on all, all the guys ahead of them in case anyone slides. I'm sure they do. This is a multi-billion dollar business, but I I just hope that they are, they remain flexible enough that they're prepared for that option if it arises. And Burke, this is phenomenal. And just to go back on, you know, your evaluation of the White Sox and Mike Shirley, just thinking about it, like as a fan right now, I feel pretty optimistic about how the front office is structured regarding player development um, and the decision making there, because you know, I kind of break it down into three steps. So Mike, you could have the philosophy behind going after a draft pick, um, which is like going under slot and then spending in prep, maybe in subsequent rounds like we've talked about. Then it's about player development. And obviously it's about decision making, too. But when it, when it comes to the White Sox decision in the past versus where we've seen it now, I just think they're making strides in the right direction because Mike Shirley's not afraid of risk. And we've seen it with Peyton Paulette and, and Colson Montgomery and Noah Schultz. So I'm I'm excited. And at 15, the White Sox, now just to totally switch the conversation to my final point, at 15, they, they were not involved in the Major League Baseball draft um, lottery. But the Twins were, 
and the A's got hit pretty hard. Uh, what was your opinion of the first experience of the MLB draft lottery? Yeah, I mean, I think it was good. I think it adds a little a little more. Again, it's all about kind of growing the game and growing the interest in in the draft. And I've seen it grow considerably over the last 10 years of, of covering the ba- covering baseball. But I think the lottery helped uh, more of the casual fans be involved in, in the process. It'll obviously take some some tweaking, but um, I think it'll it'll also limit the amount of of just absolute tanking that that we've seen, or, or at least that's the hope, right? Um, so I think it, I think it's a step in the right direction. I think we'll probably need to to tweak it a little bit, uh, but o- overall, initial impressions are it's a positive for, in my, in my case. Burke, do you have any uh, draft night plans? Anything that we can look forward to on your end? Typically, you know, I again, I, I get into fan mode. I, I just, I'm, I'm so interested in just watching how that night plays out. I, I typically spend it maybe doing a few podcast hits, but but watching it and then tweeting out videos that I've gotten of players throughout the throughout the year to say, hey, you know, Reds fans, here's here's a look at this this guy that I saw in, in May and whatever, and and kind of letting the letting the night play out like that. It's just. To me, it's it's the Christmas Eve. It's the, it's the Christmas day mm-hmm. of of folks who 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 focus on college or high school baseball or the draft. It's just I I love it, and I I think we've I think the sport has has done a, a good job of of promoting that event. Um, as we've seen, it's gotten a, a lot more popular over the last decade or so. Burke, uh, we might bug you on draft night. Uh, we're hosting a live draft show on Future Sox, so if you're not busy and you're available, we're going to be uh, bugging you a little bit to give us some information, if that's cool. Sure, please do. I always enjoy talking to you guys. Yeah, really appreciate the time today, Burke. Thanks so much for joining on, on the Future Sox podcast, where you can get information on all of you know the Chicago White Sox organization, whether it's draft, big league club, SoxMachine.com is where you can get White Sox specific. If you want more information provided by Burke Ranger and his team, go to d1baseball.com and follow him on Twitter at Burke Ranger. Well, James, that's what I'm talking about. We are getting close. I think we have one more show before the live draft show that we are going to do. And the, the, the draft will be here and then we can react and get more information on what the White Sox want to do and how to, how they're going to put their talents in, in spots in the affiliates. I'm looking forward to All of the changes coming up. The second half of the season is right around the corner. So I really appreciate the support. For those listening on Patreon, you get no ads. If you'd like to become a patron, go to SoxMachine.com and explore all the options that our Patreon features have for you. So thanks so much for being a supporter for Burke Granger, for James Fox. My name is Mike Rankin. We release episodes every Tuesday here on the Future Sox Podcast. We'll talk to you all next week.